And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and living God, we gather today with saints all over the world and surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to praise you, Father, for being God and God alone. Creator, Redeemer, the source of all good things, and a God full of grace and mercy. Indeed, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. And we do need you every hour. We need your grace every hour, Father. This morning, we confess our failures to you. We confess our impure thoughts. We confess our failures of self-control. We confess our hurtful words. We confess our selfishness and our desires to promote ourselves and build our own empires. We confess all of these struggles to you this morning. And we lean on the good news that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins through the riches of your grace. Yes, your grace is sufficient for us. We lift up many to you this morning in prayer. We, we lift up our government leaders to you. Father, we pray that you would pour out your grace upon them, that you would fill them with your wisdom and your guidance and your mercy. Father, we pray for an end to this pandemic. Lord, have mercy on us. We lift up our firefighters to you as they are fighting fires all along the West Coast. We um, pray that you would have mercy on them, Father. We also lift up our missionaries spread throughout the world and we pray that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would also cover them with your grace. Father, we also thank you for the youth trip to River Camp last week. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for all the youth that went. We lift up this week to you. We lift up the uh, summer camp for the kids this week. We lift up Christine and Lisa and her team that you would strengthen and encourage them throughout the week and may, may seeds be grown or be sown deep into these little hearts this week, Father. And we lift up Bernard to you this morning as he brings our message to you, to us, your message to us, and we um, pray that you would speak to each one of us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, now we turn our attention to the sermon today, and to begin with, we're going to read our scripture reading. Bernard has chosen Psalm 115 this morning, so hear the word of the Lord. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. 
But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, though, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Amen. Well, good morning all, and thank you for that. So dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose true, and dare to make it known. So that is the chorus of a uh, song that I grew up singing a lot. And uh, back in February, uh, Christine sang it for us. Back when I was preaching on the, through Second Thessalonians and I got to the man of lawlessness in chapter two. And on that Sunday, uh, our kids' message, uh, Lisa gave us the kids' message, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter six. And our scripture reading was an abridgment of the fiery furnace, Daniel chapter three, and Christine led us in singing uh, Dare to be a Daniel. So as I come now to Daniel chapter three today, I've got a feeling of uh, deja vu, um, that we were here back in February. Um, Then we were approaching it from uh, the direction of of the New Testament. Today we're looking at the actual text of Daniel. Dare to have a purpose true. Do we have a purpose to which we remain, we remain true no matter what is going on around us? Are we able to withstand the pressure to conform? Because we all face tremendous societal pressure to conform. Uh, teenagers, especially young girls, face enormous peer pressure. And it's uncomfortable to stick out as different, to swim against the crowd. But if we dare to have a purpose true, then there will be times that we stick out from the crowd. And Paul wrote to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, or as J.B. Phillips so memorably put it, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Well, today we come to Daniel chapter three, this well-known story of the fiery furnace. And looking ahead, it is parallel to Chapter six, Daniel in the lion's den. That's why I put the two of those together back in February. And when we get to uh, chapter six in August, we will revisit some of these same themes that we encounter today. And again, this chapter is too long to read as part of the sermon, which is a great pity because chapter three in particular is a really great chapter to read aloud. It's full of wonderful language. Not that being thrown into a superheated furnace is fun to read about. And again, I hope that you've brought your Bible and uh, invite you to turn to Daniel chapter three. Um, I am gonna, I'm only gonna read uh, select verses, but m- most of the text will be put up on the screen and I will give some uh, summaries of that text. So, turning to Daniel chapter three. And I'll read just the first uh, paragraph, the first scene, uh, to give you a flavor of of, uh, the language of this wonderful text. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter two, we saw last week that King Nebuchadnezzar had seen a vision of an enormous statue or image with the head of gold. And now he has made a huge image of gold. It's uh, 60 cubits tall, which as we heard was uh, 90 feet. And we don't know what precise form it was, whether it was a statue, whether it was some form of a monument, but it was an image. It represented something, either the king or a deity. And given the close association between Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Marduk, the god of Babylon, uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's the king or the god, the two are so closely connected. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's image. Eight more times the chapter will tell us that it was the image which King Nebuchadnezzar set up. See, so it was about him. The image was a projection into the world of the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatness of his gods and the greatness of Babylon. It was meant to dazzle and portray that greatness. The king was at the center of a vast empire with a vast imperial bureaucracy. There were satraps and there were prefects and there were governors and on and on and on. And he summoned this entire bureaucracy to assemble for the dedication of his gold image. And there was immediate compliance. The long list assembled for the dedication. And the image was now the focal point of the entire empire. And the king issued a decree through his herald, not just to the assembled dignitaries, but to all nations, peoples, and languages. When the music starts, and now we have another long list, this time of instruments, when the music starts, everyone must fall down on their faces and pay homage to the image. It's literally an orchestrated worship. Fall down and worship, fall down and worship. We hear the pair of words repeatedly throughout the chapter. Fall down and worship the image. Fall down and worship the king. Fall down and worship the gods. And if you don't, if you don't fall down and worship, there's a penalty. A penalty for non-compliance, for non-conformity. A penalty for not signaling allegiance to the image and to the king and the gods it represents. 
those not conforming to the king's decree would be thrown immediately into the midst of the blazing, fiery furnace. Uh, NIV here just has blazing furnace. There's actually three separate terms there. So I'm going to render it with three terms to make it uh, even hotter. Blazing, fiery furnace. And this blazing, fiery furnace looms large throughout the whole chapter. And again, there was immediate compliance. The orchestra played, and everyone fell down and worshipped the image. The empire was united around the king's image. Everyone conformed. The king was satisfied. No one was thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace. All was well in Babylon. But not so fast. Some of the king's astrologers, so some of his magicians and all the people we read about last week, came forward and they denounced the Jews. And the unity of all nations, peoples, and languages was now shattered by singling out the Jews, one particular people. And the astrologers reminded the king of his decree. And again, we hear the list of the musical instruments. Again, we hear of the requirement to fall down and worship. Again, we hear of the threat of the blazing, fiery furnace. And then the astrologers got specific in verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So they singled out the Jews again. Not all of them, just these three specific Jews, the three, quote, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So now we see what was motivating these astrologers. It wasn't noble jealousy for the honor of the gods of Babylon. It wasn't noble jealousy for the honor of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It wasn't noble jealousy for the unity of the empire, all nations, peoples, and languages. It was evil jealousy towards these three Jews. Why? Because the king had promoted them at the end of chapter 2. Now, I very much doubt that these three Jews were conspicuous in their refusal to bow down and worship, that they made a show of not conforming. I assume that their resistance was quiet and unobtrusive, that they were not calling attention to themselves. They were trying to flourish in a foreign land while still being loyal to the Lord. But the jealous astrologers went out of their way to notice. These jealous astrologers were looking for a reason to engineer their downfall, and they thought they had it. And the astrologers intensified the charge. It's not simply that these Jews refuse to fall down and worship the king's image. They don't serve the king's gods. And their charge struck home as they knew it would. The king flew into a furious rage. He summoned the three men, and they were brought before him. And the king said to them, verse 14, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, part, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. 
but if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, despite his furious rage, I think the king dealt kindly with the man to begin with. Is it true, he asked? Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship my image? And he offers them a second chance using an if, if not construction. And here I was thinking back to uh, the days long, long ago when I was writing if, 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 else, end if code, but uh, back in distant memory. If you are ready, when you hear the music, then fall down and worship the image. Perhaps they hadn't been ready the first time the orchestra played, but now they are. Now they're ready, cue the music, fall down and worship, and then the end will be that all will be well. But if not, or perhaps we should say else, else if you don't worship the image, then it's into the blazing fiery furnace immediately, end if, and the end of them. Then the king adds a zinger to emphasize the finality of the end. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's a rhetorical question, expecting the answer, none. No God can possibly rescue these three from the hand of the mighty king. Not even Wesley could escape this one. Now, how will the three men respond to this tremendous pressure to conform? How will they respond to the king's if, if not, his if, else? If you conform to what everyone else is doing, you'll be fine. If you don't conform but insist on being different, it's the end. Now, the king is not asking them to stop their worship of Yahweh, their God, the God of the Jews. They can still worship him in private, but now in public, they must bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image. They must acknowledge the superiority of Babylon, of its gods and of its king. They are now in his glorious empire, while Jerusalem lies in ruins. There must be public unity and conformity throughout the empire centered on Nebuchadnezzar's gold image. Well, the three men responded to the king's if, if not, with their own if, if not. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. If. But what is the if? Uh, there is considerable difference across the English translations here because uh, the text can be read in three different ways. Um, much discussion about this. Uh, firstly, according to the NIV and the ESV and what's up on the screen, is the if refers to what the king has just said, the threat of the blazing fiery furnace. So if they are thrown into the fiery, blazing fiery furnace, then they are confident that God is able to deliver them and will deliver them, both from the furnace and from the king's hand, his power. So in this reading, the three men are superheroes with superhero faith this great confidence that God will deliver them. Second option 
In a number of translations is that the, if God exists, then he is able to rescue us and will rescue us. If God exists, perhaps in the sense of, what the, uh, of a response to the king's challenge, if such a God exists, when he said, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? If such a God exists, who is able to do this? Perhaps that's what the men are saying. And then the third option, which is given in the NIV footnote, in margin, those of you who have a printed text in front of you, is if our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, then he will deliver us. And many don't like this translation because it suggests that the three men doubted the power of God. Although this is the one I currently uh, lean towards. So that's the if. Next, the if not, the else. If God does not deliver us from the blazing fiery furnace, we want you to know something, O king. Your gods we will not serve, and the gold image you set up we will not worship. Not now, not ever, not even when faced with the blazing fiery furnace. They don't know if, the king will deliver, if God will deliver them or not. They leave that in God's hands. Either way, if and if not, they will not bow down. They stand on principle. They dare to have a purpose, and to that they will remain true. And Nebuchadnezzar had reduced this to a negotiable if, if not. If you bow down and worship, then life. If you do not bow down and worship, then death. He'd reduced it to a carrot and a stick. If you bow down, here's the carrot, you'll live. If you don't bow down, here's the stick, you'll die. An enticement and a threat. And in that if, if not of the king, the outcome was different. Life or death in the blazing fiery furnace. But for the three Jews, refusal to worship the false gods was non-negotiable. If or if not, the outcome was the same. We will not bow down and worship. Whether God delivered or not was secondary. Whether they lived or not was secondary. To their purpose, they will remain true. They will not break the first two commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. They dare to have a purpose and to that they will remain true. They will remain true to the Lord, the true God. And this confession of the three Jews is the center of the chapter on which everything turns. This is why I had Psalm 115 as our scripture reading. It's God and God alone that they will worship. Now in verse 13, before this confession, Nebuchadnezzar was furious and threatened the Jews with the blazing fiery furnace. And in the parallel passage, paragraph after their confession, we read that he was furious and his attitude towards them changed. Literally, the expression on his face was changed. His face was as red hot in anger as the blazing fiery furnace was red hot in heat. But that furnace wasn't hot enough 
for his red-hot anger. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, this furnace was probably a brick oven, a brick kiln. Uh, Mesopotamia had a problem. It had no stone to use for building. So they had to make their own artificial stone. They had lots of clay and mud, and uh, they made that into bricks and fired the bricks. As we read in the Tower of Babel story back in Genesis 11, they said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And the narrator adds, they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. So the Israelites up living in the Judean hills, they had lots of stone to use for building. The uh, people in Babylon had to make their own artificial stone, fired bricks. Now, what temperature does it take to fire a brick, to turn clay into fire bricks? Uh, it requires about 1,000 degrees centigrade. So that would be the temperature of a brick oven. And Nebuchadnezzar orders that it be heated seven times hotter than that. Hot indeed. Nebuchadnezzar ordered his strongest men to bind the three Jews and throw them into the blazing fiery furnace, fully clothed. Now we get another list. Robes, trousers, turbans, and all. In they went. And the superheated furnace was now so hot that it killed the men who threw them in. And after repeated warnings of the penalty of being thrown in, in they went, and they fell into the middle of the blazing, fiery furnace. What God will be able to rescue them? Well, the king peered in, eager for the satisfaction of seeing these rebels burnt to a crisp. But he leapt up in astonishment. Verse 24, weren't the three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So not only are the three Jews not burnt to a crisp, their bonds are gone, they're walking around and they seem fine, and there's a fourth person in there. This is often interpreted as the pre-incarnate Christ, but I prefer to keep the second person, the Trinity, away from the earth until he enters as the word of God incarnate. Instead, I think this is an angel, a messenger sent from God to be present with his people, even in the midst of the blazing, fiery furnace. The king addresses them as servants of the Most High God and orders them to come out, and out they came. And all the officials, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and so on, they all crowded around to see and to smell. The fire had not touched them, not even the smell of the fire. And the king praised the Jews and their God for their obstinate defiance. Verse 28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. They were willing to give up their lives rather than compromise, willing to die rather than break the first two commandments. They dared to have a purpose true. And as they sought to flourish in a foreign land, they remained true to the Lord their God. They would not give their allegiance to another.
And then the king issued a decree, verse 29. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. So the king who had rhetorically asked what God will be able to rescue you from my hand now confesses that no other God can save in this way. Now he was not calling for all his peoples to worship the God of the Jews, but the Jews can now continue to serve and worship their God without harassment. And anyone who does harass them and here he perhaps is looking directly at the astrologers. Anyone who does so will suffer the same fate that he threatened against his astrologers back in the previous chapter if they couldn't tell him the dream. Chapter 2, verse 5. They would be dismembered and their houses destroyed. And finally, the king promoted the three Jews in the province of Babylon. No doubt, much to the chagrin of the astrologers, who had tried to destroy the three. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They refused to break the first two commandments, prohibiting other gods and making, bowing down to, and worshiping images. But the very reason they were in Babylon was because Israel had failed to keep those two commandments. Indeed, Israel broke those commandments almost as soon as they were given. Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the two tablets on the law on which the Lord himself had written the Ten Commandments. And he found the people worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had made, bowing down to it. Moses hurled the tablets to the ground and they shattered. The covenant lay broken. But thanks to Moses' bold intercession, God spared Israel and wrote on a new set of tablets. But Israel remained prone to idolatry, to switching allegiance to other gods, to false gods. Israel failed to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And finally, the Lord removed his presence from the temple and removed Israel from the land, sending them into exile in Babylon. And it was during the exile that the Jews finally got serious about keeping the commandments, about living life according to God's law, about not giving their allegiance to other gods. Now, three weeks ago, Tim directed our attention to Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is about a century after the end of exile, back in the land where Ezra the scribe, the teacher of the law, stood in front of all the people in Jerusalem and he read the law and the Levites instructed the people in it. And the people bowed down and worshiped the Lord. It was a day of tears, of great weeping, but also of great joy, of weeping out of realization of how much they had broken that law over century after century after century in great joy and now this opportunity to put the law back there and to worship the Lord and him alone. Now, as I said, that was after the return from exile. Most Jews remained outside the land, living in foreign empires, struggling to remain faithful to the Lord, 
And even those who were in the land were living under those foreign empires. And they faced great pressure to bow the knee to their rulers. And this pressure reached its peak in the early second century BC when Antiochus IV, Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire, attempted to eradicate all Jewish practice. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And this is certainly part of uh, the history that lies behind the man of lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But one man resisted launching the Maccabean revolt that eventually retook the temple and rededicated it, the event that is commemorated ever since in the Jewish feast of Hanukkah, of dedication. So the Jews took idolatry seriously after the exile, as a result of the exile. They remained true to their God. And that lasted into the Roman Empire. And the Romans learned that the Jews would rather die than be forced to worship false gods. And uh, the Romans could never understand that attitude, that it was important enough to die for. But they allowed them, when uh, they pressured, they required people in the empire to pray to the emperor they allowed them to pray for the emperor. They never understood their insistence on worshiping one god alone. For the Romans, the more gods there were, the better, and you pick your god, but they allowed that. And worship is a major theme in the book of Revelation, which the women will start studying in September. We're there using the imagery of the book, the false prophet orchestrates the worship of the beast. And readers in the first century would have seen the Roman Empire where the imperial cult was rapidly growing. Emperors viewed themselves as divine and were worshiped as Lord and God. Temples were built for this imperial cult. Big statues of the emperors were put up and they were worshiped. And the stories of Daniel were a great encouragement to the Christians as they had been to the Jews and they form a backdrop to the book of Revelation, as you women will find out. These are stories of resistance that encourage others in their resistance, then and now. In the mid-second century, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, was arrested and commanded to deny Christ. And the official who was bringing him in for trial said, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? What harm is there in just saying that? Polycarp was brought before the proconsul, the governor of the province of Asia. He said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent. I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp replied, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was burned alive, one of the early martyrs. He was a faithful witness, even unto death. Word for witness is martyrs. And so many faithful witnesses ended up dead that it then acquired its term of how we understand martyr. One of my favorite movies is A Man for All Seasons, which uh, we watched again on Friday night. Um, it's about Sir Thomas More maintaining his integrity under intense pressure to compromise his beliefs to approve the divorce of Henry VIII. 
He dared to have a purpose true and he paid with his life. God did not deliver him from death, but more maintained his integrity to the end. He had a non-negotiable that could not be reduced to if and if not. If he lived or if he did not live was secondary. The then was the same, that he would stand before God with a clear conscience. And it was that vision that enabled him to be true to his Lord. Now the cover article of this month's Christianity Today is about the Nigerian schoolgirls who were uh, abducted um, back by Boko Haram back in 2014 and held for several years. And uh, two reporters for the Wall Street Journal uh, set out to investigate how did these uh, schoolgirls manage to survive their ordeal that stretched on for year after year after year. And they write, quote, we saw clearly how the teenagers' will to survive was inseparable from their religious convictions. Most of them were Christians. Many had sung in church choirs. They had a Bible which they kept hidden from their captors and they sang the hymns and the songs that they knew so well. One was a hymn about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These girls had a purpose clear as they sang, we the children of Israel will not bow. They dared to resist, inspired by the biblical stories of those who had dared to resist. They did not know if they would be rescued. But rather than brooding on what if, they kept to a simple if and if not. If we are rescued or if we are not rescued is the same. We will not bow. And so they endured. They encouraged one another to be faithful and they were faithful. Now we don't face pressure to bow down to statues, golden images, idols, but we are very good at making idols to which we give our allegiance. Our heart is a great factory of those. And often we put a religious spin upon it because the idols that we bow down to might be God of our cause, whatever that cause might be, the God of my comfort, or the God of my success, or the God of my nation. And in one way or another, we give our allegiance to one who is other than the God who reveals himself in scripture, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we remain true in our allegiance to God and to Christ? Well, again, as I said last week, it's so important, or the first week, it's so important that we meet together. We gather together and we sing. We sing songs of our Lord God and of our Christ. And we pray. And we take communion together. In many churches they say the creed together, the Lord's Prayer together. And in all these ways, focus our attention upon God and God alone. And go away refreshed in our allegiance and our commitment to serve God and worship him and not give our allegiance to another. So may God be gracious to us and grant us that we might do that. 
that we might have, dare to have a purpose, and to that remain true. Amen. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.